Consumers no longer fit into traditional categories. So what's a marketer to do? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. And this is a Supply Chain Brain podcast. So who is this so-called postmodern consumer who seems to cross all lines of taste and can't be squeezed into the old labels or market segments on which merchandisers used to rely? And what kind of marketing strategies are needed to capture the attention and pocketbook of this strange new animal? That's the topic of my conversation today with Michael Solomon, author of Marketers Tear Down These Walls, Liberating the Postmodern Consumer. He argues that the old labels simply don't apply anymore, and that sellers must revisit their fundamental assumptions in this new cultural environment. We're going to discuss how companies can thrive as they attempt to create a market of one. At the same time, they need to understand the apparently contradictory phenomenon of the hive mind, which has a powerful influence on consumer tastes and preferences. So grab a sledgehammer and find out what's behind the old crumbling walls that separate sellers from consumers. Here is my conversation with Michael Solomon. Michael Solomon, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Title of your book is Marketers Tear Down These Walls! Exclamation point. I have to think that you're referencing Ronald Reagan at the Berlin Wall in 1987 when he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Is that, in fact, a reference to that great historical moment? For those of us who can remember that far back, yep. <laughs> so you're kind of conflating the two in terms of importance, are you not? I guess you're you're making a big statement about just how important it is that we look at consumers in a different way. It's a very dramatic approach, is it not? Well, it, it is, and it's based on many years of doing consumer research and talking to consumers. The Berlin Wall was a big deal, but the disruptions that we're seeing in the marketplace also are, are a really, really big deal. And I think a lot of marketing managers haven't really grasped the extent to which consumers are changing. And so my motivation to write the book was really to highlight some of the fundamental assumptions we make about consumers and to show why they really don't apply anymore. So what exactly is the postmodern consumer? Well, when we talk about postmodernism, what we're referring to here is that we're getting rid of fixed categories. So when you think about modernism, and we see this in architecture, we see it in art, we see it all over the place, but what it really means is that things are very well-defined and objective. There are objective truths that we can understand, and postmodernism means that we've moved beyond that so that people are actually drawing on experiences in a variety of domains. 
the best analogy I can use to kind of cut through the academic jargon is to have you to think about maybe one of these all-you-can-eat buffet places that are all over the country or even the food court at any shopping mall where you have cuisines from all over the world. And so what people are putting on their plates, they're not just having an Italian dinner or a Chinese dinner or Mexican dinner. They are combining dishes from all kinds of places. And that is exactly what consumers are doing today, what postmodern consumers are doing. So, for example, they're changing up their lifestyles, and therefore we can no longer categorize them the way we used to just by using simple demographics, for example. So uh, the postmodern consumer is someone who is really thirsting for a variety of experiences and no longer fits behind these very convenient walls that marketers have erected. And that's hence the, the main title of the book, Marketers Tear Down These Walls. Feasting from the smorgasbord and causing indigestion to marketers, right? <laughs> I would... <laughs> That's one way to look at it. If Certainly, if you don't see it coming, yeah, it can sneak up on you, absolutely. Yeah, now you said simple demographics, but really demographics are, up to this point, have become quite sophisticated. They aren't so simple. Are you, are you actually saying that demographics as we know it, and for that matter, psychographics, in which marketers and psychologists put us all into these myriad of different types of categories, should we just throw all that out the window now? Well, I wouldn't say throw it out the window, but I'd say take it with a grain of salt or take it as a starting point. Too often, we tend to feel that we understand someone because we have labeled someone. Sure, psychographics are great. I use them all the time, but it's only a starting point. And the, and the reason is that when we create even a very detailed profile of someone in terms of lifestyle, preferences, and so on. That is very static, and people are changing very rapidly. Even if you have very sophisticated demographic information, you have two people who have the same demographic profile in terms of income, place of residence, gender, all that good stuff. The way that they allocate their discretionary income can be very, very different. So even there, we find that Again, it's a good starting point, but in an age where marketers are starting, at least some marketers are starting to talk about so-called markets of one. In other words, each individual is his or her own market. And of course, increasingly, we're able to track what individuals do to a very, very fine degree. Sometimes there are privacy issues that we're all talking about now. That's the negative side of that. But the positive side is that what people want is a customized experience. They're getting this to some extent. When you browse online and you say, oh, there's an ad for something I was just looking at yesterday, obviously that's not a coincidence. But what that is is highly customized, a highly personalized experience. And you're not going to get that with a mass market, broad brush segmentation approach. Okay, not mass market, certainly, but there has to be a practical level of this. At some point, marketers are still targeting to some degree. Like if you're watching a football game and you see the commercials come on, those commercials are geared toward people who will watch a football game. Or if I'm watching a program that fits my taste, I will see advertisements try to reflect me back to myself. I'll see images in which they've tried to mirror that. So there still is some targeting involved in terms of putting people into groups. So I guess you're saying it's still there, but it's not as relevant as before. 
It's still there, but it's changing very rapidly. So to take your example, when you look at traditional assumptions about who's watching football games, today the reality is that a very sizable number of those avid viewers are women. And you don't necessarily see the targeting that's going on reflect that new reality. So absolutely don't throw the baby out with the bathwater but recognize that you need to be much more in real time, let's say. You need to be tracking these changes. And perhaps also as importantly, you need to involve your customers in these kinds of targeting processes where you need to let them tell you how their lives are changing. And too often marketers don't do this. They sit behind their own wall in their offices and assume that the data are telling them everything they need to know about their customers. And if they could just get up and walk around a bit and actually fish where the fish are, so to speak, I think they can get a lot more insights that will add to the richness of psychographic information. We talk about marketing to an individual as much as possible because individuals are unique in many ways. At the same time in your book, you cover this concept of the hive mind, that is people moving and thinking in groups. So how do you kind of correlate the dynamic between the individual and the hive mind and and what should we be utilizing as our tool toward approaching the whole issue of marketing? Well, that's a great observation, and I can tell you read the book. I appreciate that. (laughs) What I mean by the hive mind is that many people, especially younger shoppers, they still want to be individuals, and they're using brands, they're combining brands in very unique ways to express their identities. But the flow of information that they're accessing to find out what these brands are is largely a collective flow of information. So it's more of an always-on kind of thing. Back in the day when we wanted to learn about what to buy, we would proactively initiate that process. That is, we would look at magazines or watch TV or something like that to get ideas. And today, it's much more, there's this kind of raging river of information flowing by me, and I need to dip my bucket into that and find out what's going on. Now, one of the things that's changed is that the way we find out what's going on is not by consulting authoritative sources like fashion magazines or, dare I say, college professors like me, but rather by tapping into this network that we've created, largely consisting of people whom we'll never physically meet. So I find with my students, for example, at a university, they need to legitimize their decisions to a much greater extent than we older people did. When they have a meal put in front of them. They don't start eating it until they snap a photo of it and post it on Instagram. I've had students tell me that they didn't know their boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with them until that person changed their relationship status on Facebook. (laughs) So it's much more of a, let me ask my network and do a lot of research before I actually make the purchase. Now in the insect world, the literal hive mind often has a queen. And in the metaphorical sense, all consumers aren't created equal in terms of their impact on guiding the direction of the hive mind. So what is the role today of market influencers, those individuals who somehow seem to have more power and draw more people to them and the ones that maybe are the ones that should be targeted? Should we be looking at those people in a very concerted way these days? Absolutely. We've always had influencers in the system. There's always been a huge difference in terms of who says something. In other words, two people can advocate the same purchase or political idea, what have you, and 
one of them will be impactful and one of them will not be. We've known that for 50 or 60 years of communications research. But the question is today, who are those sources? This is where the everyday person has really attained a position of authority that they didn't used to have. So yes, there are these queens in the hive, but they're not the traditional suspects. They're now, for example, in the fashion area, we have the rise of the fashion blogger. And so you have this amazing situation where, in some cases, uh, literally, let's say, a girl who's 16 years old or even younger can, so to speak, move a market. And marketers don't really know how to deal with that yet. I mean, some of them are starting to understand this. The problem is that those sources, unlike the traditional ones, tend to change very rapidly over time. So that that 16-year-old, it's kind of like a one-hit wonder in the music industry. They come and go very quickly. Andy Warhol once said, everybody's going to have their 15 minutes of fame. Well, today it could be five minutes of fame. Some people call it even nano-fame or micro-fame. And so it's a real challenge to stay on top of who those influencers are. But there's no question that they're extremely effective. What do you mean when you say in the book that authenticity is king? I think of us as being in an era of pseudo-events, of product placement, of fake reviews, of so-called artisanal products that are actually made by huge brands whose names just aren't on the product. In what sense do you mean that authenticity yeah. is king? Well, that's a great observation, and I think that it's a reaction to all of those things that you've listed that are really eroding our belief in traditional sources. And we have all of this talk about fake news and so on. People don't know what to believe anymore. And I talk about authenticity primarily in the context of millennials and Gen Zers, the younger consumers. They have been barraged by this ever since they were little kids. There's a yearning for value, for the real thing, for credibility. And so what you find is when you talk to kids, what they want to know is, what do you really stand for? I mean, let's cut out all the corporate hype and all that. What does your brand really stand for? And you need to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So how are you giving back to the community, for example? That's one form of authenticity. When we talk about corporate social responsibility, very important to young people to see that brands are actually not just saying they're sustainable, for example, but they're actually doing things to help the environment. That's one aspect of authenticity. A second one is heritage. In other words, does your brand have a real story behind it? Is it two sisters who decided they didn't like the soaps they found in the grocery store, so they started their own soap company and left their day jobs, and et cetera? People want to know the story behind that. And, and related to that is something I think with all the work you do on supply chain, People want to know more about that supply chain. They want to know what I call the brand genealogy of what they're buying. That is, they want to know where it came from. If they're eating a steak, they want to know where the cattle were farmed and, and all that. And I was at a restaurant recently, a seafood restaurant, where they actually, next to each fish, listed the name of the fisherman who caught that fish. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You know, that's maybe a little extreme, but this notion of locavores, for example, they want that supply chain to be local. This is also a manifestation of this authenticity, the need to better understand what's going on, not just in terms of what I'm seeing at the store, but also throughout the supply chain. 
Now, none of this is going to happen without information. In fact, in order for marketers to approach the postmodern consumer, it has to have more information about those consumers than they've ever had before. Do you think we might be reaching? I mean, up to this point, consumers have been only so happy to part with personal information in order to be on Facebook and Instagram and Reddit or wherever. Do you think that consumers might at some point start pushing back on the data sharing aspect? Because we certainly have seen governments doing it in Europe uh, and maybe spreading. Do you think that might be an issue that marketers have to deal with in the future? I think there's no question about that. There are going to be some people who recognize that their data are valuable. I'm always amazed when, for example, when I'm asked to take a survey and it says it's only going to take 15 to 20 minutes of your time. <laughs> and I say, well, okay, now what am I getting in return for this? Because what I'm telling you obviously has some value to you, but you're, you're not offering me anything in return. So I think we're going to see the emergence of a new class of, let's call them data brokers, people who or organizations that are going to say to consumers, look, your information is valuable because without it, we can't do business. And therefore, you're going to be more of a partner in this transaction. We're not just going to take from you without giving. There's a cost to this. And so it can be as simple as offering an incentive to someone to participate in, in a survey. Now, having said that, when I talk to my students, I'm often surprised, and I, we talk a lot about privacy, and I say to them, do you understand how much companies know about you? And often their response is, well, you know what, I opted into this, and you have to expect that when you go online, they're going to know everything about you. So what? My life is an open book. But having said that, when I start to show them the details about what companies know, they're a little surprised by that. Then they start to push back. So to your point, I think we are going to see that it's no longer this take whatever you can and you know, this frontier kind of atmosphere going on. I'd like to see consumers organize a bit more and say to companies, yeah, we want to share with you because there is value in my sharing my data. I'm getting customized product offers and things like that, but you've got to give me something in return because, after all, marketing is about an exchange of value. It's not about taking everything from you and giving nothing in return. So what is the exchange that's here? And I, th I think that's going to have to be made much more explicit and basically monetized. You know, I read your book and tried to pretend I was reading it from the standpoint of a marketer. And from that aspect, it just seemed like a terrifying uh, publication because <laughs> I read this and then I go, well, now what? What do I do with the realization that I have to, if not abandon my old techniques, at least put them aside and somehow find a much richer understanding of the consumer? What tools do I use? More face-to-face, -face, artificial intelligence, trial and error? I mean, where do we go from here? I think the answer is all of the above. There's no one way to deal with these disruptions. But big data, everybody's talking about big data, and, and that's wonderful. Artificial intelligence has great potential. I'm, I'm really excited about it, genuinely. But we tend to get seduced by data, and you've probably heard the expression, garbage in, garbage out. It's so much easier to click on your mouse a few times and get some reports than it is to actually deal with the people who are buying your products. And so I'm definitely not advocating throwing out the practice of big data and data mining and so on. It's really, really valuable. But there's a lot of nuances there that you can only pick up when you actually go to the point at which 
the consumption is actually occurring. The Japanese have a term for this. They call it going to the gemba, G-E-M-B-A. And what they mean by that is you can only understand the meaning of something if you're present at the point where it actually occurs. So big data is great, self-report are great, all these huge databases, but don't take that as gospel. Don't be a hammer in search of a nail and say, well, now that I've got this big database, I don't actually have to go out and interview anybody, for example. So the best thing to do, and you know, I think any good methodologist will tell you, don't ever use just one research technique to study whatever it is you're studying. You want to triangulate by using more than one because each technique is imperfect. So if you can find a way to combine, for example, qualitative research like depth interviews and focus groups and ethnographies and so on with these much more sophisticated analytical techniques, then you get that more complete picture that, again, you're not going to get from traditional segmentation studies. Once again, the book is called Marketers Tear Down These Walls! Exclamation point, liberating the postmodern consumer, Michael Solomon. I want to thank you so much for helping us to understand who this strange animal is and how we can approach marketing in the future and the future of brands and the like. I will link to this book in the show notes to the episode. But thank you so much for being with me today. Well, thank you, and thanks for your insightful questions. That was my conversation with author Michael Solomon, talking about the need to shatter conventional product marketing strategies. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.